Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Today through Thursday, the Surface Navy Association convenes its 36th National Symposium. Yesterday, Chris Cavus, the co-host of our award-winning Cavus Ships podcast, and I had the opportunity to meet with Chris Kastner, the president and CEO of HII. Here's our conversation with Chris Kastner. Chris, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to uh, start off, and I'm glad that I'm joined by my co-conspirator, uh, uh, Chris Cavus, on this of the Cavus Ships uh, podcast. And unfortunately, the other Chris, Chris Cervello, couldn't join us for this uh, discussion. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the budget deal. It's still very fresh. Uh, we don't know the details. There's going to be likely a continuing resolution between here uh, and there, but it does clear the budget cycle to proceed for the for the Pentagon uh, effectively. From, from your standpoint, what's the importance of this deal as the CEO of an important American defense contractor and America's largest shipbuilder. Uh, and what does it mean for your outlook on all elements of your business? Yeah, well, we think it's positive. Having a top line and some certainty in the top line uh, at this stage in the process is good. There's a lot of details that need to be ironed out. We need to understand those. Uh, very important for us was LPD 33 being protected. It's protected in the uh, NDAA, should be protected in the values that are uh, identified in the top line. So. Uh, it's important for us that, that it gets done. Uh, it's important that all our programs are supported, which they are. Uh, so we think it's very positive. And any specifics in terms of what the shipbuilding outlook looks like? Everybody looks at naval power as being important in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, there was a lot of investment. You just spoke to reporters and you talked about the sheer number of programs, the sheer number of submarines and surface ships you guys have under contract right now. What does that outlook look like for you as you look into the FIDEP, say, in the next five to 10 years? Well, so we have 41 ships under production right now, which is a significant amount of, of ships for us. Um, very bullish uh, on the outlook. We're gonna uh, we're gonna negotiate 17 or put 17 submarines under contract over the next next 12 to 18 months. Um, as I said before in our Q3 earnings call, we're in a bit of an inflection point from a growth standpoint. We've historically said three percent. Uh, is a good way to think about our business. We think it's north of that now, and we'll be able to talk more about that at our year-end call and at our investor day in March. Uh, but there's a significant amount of work we need to really deliver for our customer over the next over the next few years. Um, let me uh, take you before I hand it off to uh, Chris. I ask you about the three things I've been asking you about uh, over the last couple of years each time we've met, which is uh, where we are on inflation on supply chain and obviously on uh, on uh, labor uh, supply chains look like they're stabilizing and certainly interest rates look like they're flattening and indeed if the Fed's right, it, it goes down. Walk us through all three of these dimensions that keep you, uh, keep you occupied every day. Yeah, so inflation has stabilized a bit. Uh, we're fortunate uh, that the Navy has recognize that in the future we need inflation protection. Uh, so that has stabilized a bit. I'm confident that we'll, get, we'll be protected uh, for inflation moving forward. Uh, the supply chain, uh, while it is more stable, it does not recover to the pre-pandemic levels. The lead times are longer, and we do have specific large components that are causing us concern and, and making uh, us manufacture the ships a bit differently than we historically have and less efficiently. Um, so that's the supply chain. And then the third thing you asked me about was labor. Uh, labor, we think we've solved the hiring part of that equation. Uh, we need to solve the retention uh, and the training part of that equation. We're going to work very hard on that over the next 
the next 12 months. It's something we need to get done this year in order to provide a really a stable, stable labor base uh, to execute on our programs. Um, from a uh, component standpoint, you said some are still problematic that are affecting scheduling of construction. What are some of those components? Yeah, so I don't want to go into specifics on the programs. I don't, probably not appropriate. Uh, but uh, when you think about the, the erection schedules, you have to, ships come together a certain way. And we're very creative and innovative uh, and have really good engineers and know how to put those together. If, if you would get a delay in a program or, or, a, or a component, you have to change the, the erection schedule for that. And we do that but it is not the most efficient way to build a ship. Just a quick follow on that. Uh, in your last earnings call, you talked about you had a goal for hiring 5,000 people over that over the quarter. You exceeded that goal, 5,400. Roger, that you still have problems with retention. Everybody does. Um, but hiring, is that's, that's a different sort of metric that we're hearing these days. Can you talk about that? You, you exceeded your metrics, so overall, for the entire company. But you have, what, three major divisions and a few others. Right. But um, who did the best out, out of that? Newport News, Mission, um, Ingalls? You know, they've all exceeded their, they've all exceeded their goals for hiring. Uh, for the year, yeah, yeah, they've done they've done very well. The good news is they share best practices, uh, and this is not one solution to the to the to the labor situation. Um, they've had to uh, do trial and error on going to different areas. Interesting, uh, you can find little pockets of expertise within this country. Um, in Ohio, there are uh, machinists that we had to go to that we found where we got to hire maybe six to 10 to 12 machinists uh, for Newport News and made offers to them. So it's an interesting market. Um, uh, we've had to go about it very um, surgically uh, because it, it's a challenging market and people like machinists or advanced or really good welders are hard to come by. Interesting. Uh, but I'd like to switch a little bit to, to shipbuilding. Uh, the biggest things you build are aircraft carriers. You're the only builder in the entire world of full-sized aircraft carriers. Even the Chinese haven't quite come up to that yet. Um, but these are big ships. It takes a long time to build them. It takes a long time to plan them, a long time to buy them. Uh, the Navy's talking about delaying further procurement of the of the next class, which is going to be CVN 82 and 83. You're hoping for a block by there with two ships. You've got 80 and 81 under contract right now. Um, what, are the, what are the implications if the Navy d delays it for whatever reason, budget, money, priorities, anything? What's the, what's the fallout from that? Yeah, so you want an orderly process uh, when you're in serial production. And you don't want a gap in serial production. And as critical as it is for us from a talent standpoint to make sure you have people that roll from, the, from one ship to the next, it's even more critical from a supply chain standpoint. So we need to make sure the supply chain gets the orders, um, can execute on those orders in an organized fashion. Um, and what my job is, and shipbuilders, what shipbuilders' jobs are is to manage risk. That's what they do. One of the biggest elements of risk is the supply chain and schedule and quality of supply chain components. And um, to delay the, the acquisition of that material really puts you behind the eight ball from a ship manufacturing standpoint. Um, so the implications uh, of delay are simply it's going to cost more and um, you're going to have less capability than, than when you need it. So um, we need to make sure they get ordered. We need, need to make sure they get ordered on time in a consistent fashion um, so they're right, behi right behind 1881. So another element of delay is down in Ingalls where they, all, they build all the amphibious ships for the U.S. Navy, the big ones. The assault ships and the uh, landing platform docks yep. um, uh, ships. So at the moment, the Navy has halted 
or the Pentagon really has halted further acquisition of LPDs. Um, that has been in serious production for quite a long time, quite, quite a number of years, of virtually all this century until now. Um, you, this, this delay is already affecting things, but my understanding is you've been able to manage it pretty much up to this point. Congress is probably going to add ships in, whether the administration asks for them or not. But how long can you go? Is this, is this sort of a make-or-break year that you need the next ships to start being ordered now before you start to encounter all the problems that you're talking about with more delays? Yeah, it's not necessarily a make-or-break year. This is something we've dealt with on Anfibs for a while now. We make sure that the production schedules um, have some flex in it such that um, uh, we can um, delay potentially six months or eight months or ten months to get some of the equipment under order. Now, if we um, have confidence that a ship is going to be ordered and it's going through the process, we have a long lead item that, that might need to get ordered in advance, we'll place that order will go out on risk potentially to save that production schedule um, if we have confidence it's going to happen. LPD-33, I'm confident, is going to happen. It's protected in the NDAA. Uh, it's in the budget. As we know it, we need to understand the details. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident um, that LPD-33 will happen simply because the support of the Navy, the Marines, and the Congress, um, and it's the law that we have 31 amphibs. Um, I, I, I want to uh, follow up on uh, Chris's uh, labor question uh, really quickly because I, I've got a submarine industrial-based question. Um, where are you, Chris, on retention, right? I mean, you said that you guys are hitting hiring goals uh, and folks are paying good money for talent, but at the end of the day, shipbuilding is one of those things, right? You, you told reporters uh, the mission technology side of the business has great retention. Shipyards, on the other hand, people see that they could go to Chick-fil-A, for example, and work for $17 uh, an hour, and, and they don't necessarily have to go through the arduous training that you, you guys put people through, uh, and it's a tough, tough life in a shipyard. What are you guys doing to increase retention on that side? Because the quality of the ships you build is directly dependent on the quality of the shipbuilders. Yeah, so we're, we're not where we want to be in retention. We have work to do there. Um, what, we're, what we're finding is, so I would add, though, we're, I think we're about 17% veterans. Um, when you can get veterans through the pipeline, they'll stay. When you can get a shipbuilder beyond 12 months and buy into the mission, they'll stay. So our goal is to get new hires uh, from coming in the door, um, getting acclimated to shipbuilding, and then buying into the mission and understanding all the benefits you can get by being a shipbuilder. Um, that is different for different people. Uh, and so we're having to change the way we talk to, recruit, train, and acclimate uh, people to the shipbuilding industry. Um, and again, there's no one, um, one solution for every shipbuilder or every person that comes in the door. But the most important thing we can do is get them buying into the mission, understanding the mission, and once they do that and they understand they can have a great career, uh, then they'll stay. Uh, one of the things about shipbuilding is uh, everything is pretty much interconnected. So even though you're doing work on, on carriers and you're looking to get to those four-year centers instead of the six-and-a-half-year uh, gap that existed after Ford, um, that also affects the nuclear submarine uh, side of the business. We're trying to get to two attack submarine uh, submarines, and then, of, of course, Columbia, congratulations on delivery of the back end uh, up to electric boat, uh, which, is, which is priming that. We need to get to something like 2.3 submarines a year uh, with the Australians in it, and we're at 1.3 at this point. There's about $5 billion in submarine industrial base investment that we're, we're making. What are... What are the hangups in this system to get to where we need 
to get for a critical national capability? Yeah, so I think the hangups are, are very well understood. Um, it's the supply chain and it's labor. The Navy has been a great partner in um, understanding those and providing funding to address them. They don't resolve very quickly. When you're fixing the supply chain or a specific supplier or creating a second source, this takes a while to come through where it actually impacts the rate. So there's a very specific plan that the Navy has with, with um, General Dynamics and us uh, to increase the rate uh, and increase capacity for submarine production. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, those investments are targeted at the supply chain, labor, and capacity. Um, and once they come through, I'm very confident that the rate will increase. Are they the big pieces, uh, the little, you know, are the big pieces like ship service turbo generators and reduction gear boxes? What, what are all the holdups on this? Because Chris and I have been covering this literally for almost 15 years in terms of trying to step up and increase that rate. And we're still at 1.3. Yeah, it's all the above. It's, it's, it's wherever there's a bottleneck in the supply chain, it's being addressed. Um, through different elements of the industrial-based funding. This, this is funding that some of it comes to HII and General Dynamics uh, naturally, uh, but the majority of this goes down into the supply chain to help the supply chain uh, to eliminate that risk. And, and how are you managing the sub-sub-tiers of the, of the supply chain? In, in the uh, uh, reporter's discussion, Chris had a couple of questions about that, and each supply chain has its own supply chain. Have you guys been doing a better job sort of mapping and understanding where each of the pitfalls and, and possible problems lay in what are thousands and thousands of suppliers you guys have? Yeah, I think there's understanding within each program where there might be an issue. Um, but it's not a comprehensive program that we have um, within the DGG program or the VCS program. If there's a sub-tier that may be a problem, it's identified and it's dealt with. Uh, but that's not the vast majority of the issues. The vast majority of the issues are just our suppliers. If we can get that remedied, I think we'd be in a pretty good place. I'd like to turn to uh, Newport News for a moment. And Newport News, this is uh, you build aircraft carriers there. You also build... Um, half the Virginia-class submarines, and you have a major piece of the Columbia-class submarines. Uh, it remains to be seen the impact of AUKUS on that. But you also do the ref refueling overhauls for the aircraft yes. carriers. Yes. So traditionally, there was sort of a one-third, one-third, one-third breakdown between new carrier construction, RECO, uh, reactor overhaul, yes. um, and submarine construction. That's shifting a bit. You just had an anomaly with uh, George Washington, which was in there for six and a half years, the longest over refueling yes. overhaul forever for a variety of reasons right. but there was also concurrency had they had to bring the justinus in early so actually had two ships in the yard at the same time that had to have a certain effect that's hard to manage uh, and at, at the same time you're ramping up so trying to ramp up submarine production um, managing all this stuff and now you're actually trying to compete for uh, dismantling the enterprise. Yes. And of course, the, the, the theoretically, in, in, in a few short years, this decade, yes. uh, the, the first two Nimitz class, Nimitz and Dwight D. Eisenhower, will be decommissioned and also be available for that. That's a whole other business all by itself. That's not, that's not like building an aircraft carrier. Right. Um, boy, you got to get your hands full at, uh, at, at Newport News. Can you talk about how, you're, how you've come through some of these challenges um, and I mean, there's George Washington was redelivered last year. Right. Um, but you know, how have you come through that? 
what are the continuing challenges of managing all these different projects in the yard that, that's had a pretty stable breakdown for a long time. Right, right. Well, so uh, first, it's important to note that um, that enterprise uh, decommissioning or dismantlement will be done out of our mission technologies organization. We, uh, we have a nuclear uh, business within that organization um, that does all the DOE work, Department of Energy work. They will be the one who does that does that work with the assistance of Newport News. Um, but to get to your original question, these are notwithstanding the Columbia class, these are serial production programs. We've done a lot of work over the last couple of years in Newport News to put an operating system in place that the people that manage these programs can manage them on a very consistent manner. So when you're a program manager on an aircraft carrier now, if you are needed or you're trained on aircraft carriers and you're needed on a Virginia class program, your operating system and your tools are almost exactly the same when you transfer to that other program. We needed to make sure that it was consistent because we, we saw the growth coming. We knew that we were going to have to move management around. So we needed to make sure that when they showed up that it wasn't a complete learning that had to take place. So there's been a lot of very hard work um, within the operating system of Newport News to make sure that we can handle it. Your workforce allocation has been changing, though, throughout the art. It's not, but it's 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 all, it's it's, it's every it, it's the crafts, it's the trades, but it's managers, it's engineers, it's all the planners that you've had to do. I mean, this is you know everybody talks about the people who work at the shipyard, and often just you know the focus is on the craft, the, the trades, but there's a lot more to it than just that. And all these people have been involved, and and you know I mean, how's that working? No, no doubt. And when I talk about an operating system, I, did, I just don't talk about the craft. I talk about how engineering and planning are integrated uh, into the process with supply chain to ensure that the value stream supports the craft when they do their job. Um, so there's been a lot of work to ensure that that's seamless. Um, and I, I engineers that can work aircraft carriers now over the Virginia class program. They're all the same tools. They're all the same um, uh, management techniques to, to execute on their programs. Um, these aren't these aren't individual programs anymore. Newport News used to historically have a, an aircraft carrier program and a, a Virginia class program or a submarine program, um, and you kind of grew up in that program and you you stayed in that program. You learned in that program and you executed in that program. It's not like that anymore. You, we don't have the we we don't have the flex we don't have the um, uh, the ability to manage like that anymore because we have so much work there. You need to be able to move from uh, different programs. And it's not just in the craft. It's in the craft management. It's in the foreman. It's in the superintendents. It's in engineering. It's in planning. They all need to be able to, to migrate among programs. So one way you're trying to get around the capacity issue is to find more subcontractors, more cooperative engagements with other suppliers, but not just suppliers, shipbuilders. So, for example, Austell USA mm -hmm. uh, is building the, the, the elevators, the aircraft elevators, for CVNs 80 and 81. That's a totally new business area for them. They're aluminum. That's a new supplier for you in that, in that program. Um, Fairlead is another company that's in, in the Norfolk area. Yeah. Uh, they're on the submarine program. They're on the aircraft carrier program. Now, you just in, entered into a cooperative agreement with them in Norfolk. Um, and of course, you have this long-standing relationship with um, both the General Dynamics yards in New England, on submarines and destroyers. Yes. Um, the interaction, though, of software, computer programs, everything is everything is now electronic. Um, 
there's a lot of pressure on that segment that plans those and proofs those and makes sure they're all compatible. Now, there's to, to put out a product that is not going to delay things. Some of those suppliers or new partners or whatever have gotten back to me about this is not ready for prime time. And by the way, I'm not, that's not a focus on Newport News alone. That's not at all what I'm saying. Just, but it is an issue. And a lot of the, some of these programs have not been dealing with that before. But that's that's become a feature of shipbuilding and industry in 2023 and 2024. Are you aware of this? Are you do you, are you concerned about this? So I'm I'm very aware of it. Um, it's a risk that we're managing. Uh, when you have uh, a significant amount of work uh, and uh, potentially not amount, enough people within your own shipyards to do the work, you need to offload it. This is a, a normal. Uh, a situation that we've dealt with historically within our shipyards. Uh, the amount of outsourcing uh, within Newport News um, is significant right now, uh, and they're managing it and managing it very well. Uh, not to say that there's not challenges related to um, IT systems and, and design issues uh, where you make sh need to make sure that you do outsourcing well. Uh, there are a number of instances um, historically where outsourcing hasn't gone well. Um, I think we've got that. I think we have it under control. Um, it does add risk to your programs, no doubt. Uh, but with the amount of demand uh, that we see over the next 10 to 20 years in shipbuilding, qualifying other sources to do parts of those ships only makes sense. It's going to make us more predictable. It's going to make the nation stronger, uh, and it's going to get the Navy the ships they want faster. So while there may be growing pains in outsourcing that all of us in shipbuilding have been dealing with for a while here, it's the right thing to do for the nation. You know, when we were uh, at uh, the Submarine League uh, uh, meeting late last year, there was a lot of discussion about how the submarine force was working almost every element uh, to drive innovation, everything from what Admiral Caldwell was doing uh, at Naval Reactors on uh, across the piece to try to extend, uh, uh, you know, mean times between availabilities, increase uh, availability of individual uh, ships because the overall number is coming down. How much innovation is the Navy exhibiting from the NAVC team and elsewhere across the enterprise to help you make these decisions, make them more quickly, make them more sensibly, you know, whether it's additive manufacturing uh, parts that you guys are looking uh, to try to uh, take greater advantage of, or just production processes, right? I mean, that's, I think, one thing that Admiral Caldwell was talking about is, hey, let's not let the way we've done things get in the way. How much flexibility are you seeing? So additive is a victory. A additive is must be done. Uh, it can be done. The Navy's partnering with us to do that. Um, I just want to go faster. But additive is, is very positive. We made great strides uh, in that regard, and we need to continue to do it. Um, the Navy's been on board. The Navy knows exactly where we're at. They, um, and you see it through the SIB funding. They, they know where the risks are. Um, they're allocating funding to it. Uh, we just need to make sure we execute on it. So there's been a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, engagement by the Navy uh, in all these challenges. Um, let me ask you uh, one question, which was on uh, Chris's uh, list, uh, which is on unmanned. You guys have really made a historic investment in unmanned uh, capability to build it out from the small level all the way up uh, to uh, the largest. The Navy looked like it had a plan, but the Navy also changes its plans with certain regularity. We've seen that in amphibious ships. No, we don't want the big ships anymore. We want a whole bunch of 1,000-ton uh, ships. Um, at the end of the day, do you 
have that kind of clarity as to what those long-term plans are going to look like, whether on the unmanned side of the business or elsewhere? Yeah, there's some clarity. Obviously, we got the small win, uh, small UUV award this uh, in 2023. It's significant. It's in the multi-million, $100 million range. I think it's over $350 million. Uh, there could potentially be more there on small. It's a very versatile platform. Um, long-term plans are always just a plan, right? But we're, we're seeing it show up in, in, in awards now. So uh, small is awarded, uh, medium, we have our product in the water. It's being demonstrated. Uh, it's going very well. Um, so while long-term plans may shift around a little bit, Unmanned is here to stay. It's uh, a capability that uh, is inexpensive and can perform missions that you don't really want to tie up a capital shift to perform. Um, and it also is so very flexible when you think about surveillance and, and surveillance nodes and connecting to data and, and being part of a, um, a, a combatant picture of what they need to see, uh, that unmanned is absolutely um, here to stay. It's being demonstrated in exercises uh, this year, a number of exercises uh, in the Pacific. Uh, we'll partic participate in those. Um, but yeah, unmanned is here to stay. It's starting to ramp. Uh, it's very positive for us right now, and we feel good about where we're positioned. And it's an uh, increasingly competitive space, though. But yeah, so it's it's I, I um, similar to air, right? I was at Northrop Grumman and worked on the Global Hawk program, uh, which was a, it, it was and is an excellent program, uh, but it's low barrier entry. There's going to be a lot of participants. They're going to do a lot of different missions. Uh, and so uh, we just need to make, be prepared for that, and I think we are. Uh, let me ask you about the transformation of the company. Uh, the, you guys uh, took a little bit of heat uh, from financial markets for expanding in technical services and in mission systems. Uh, there were some, I think, even in the Navy, were like, wow, this company doesn't love us as much uh, anymore, maybe a little bit of. Um, but it's also helping you transform fundamentally your business. Uh, and one of the cases uh, you've made in your predecessor, Mike Petters, used to make was, this is going to make us a better shipbuilder. How is the investment in mission, uh, in the technical services side of it, in mission technologies, um, you know, whether on the training side, whether on the data side, how is it actually transforming and helping you be a better shipbuilder? Yeah, so I don't know if you have an hour left of this, this interview, but... If you uh, want it, Chris, you've got an hour. <laughs> So making us a better shipbuilder. So I'll give a plug to Mission Technology before we talk about how it impacts our shipbuilding business. They have $5 billion of awards in 2023 Q through Q3. Um, they're growing uh, at a significant rate. Um, they're almost doing, as large as Ingalls now. They are as large as Ingalls now. Um, so the Mission Technologies organization is doing very, very well. They, they bring... Um, a technology focus to the corporation and to our shipbuilding business that we really didn't have before. They give us a technology seat at the table when we go talk to um, combatant commands on solving some of their most complicated and important um, relevant issues that they're dealing with right now. Um, that we can, we can, as a tech agnostic um, integrator of commercial technology, we can use to solve some of their biggest problems. Um, so Mission Technologies is doing very, very well. Now, how can they help us in shipbuilding? I do pilots now. I have my best AI engineers um, evaluating uh, pilots and doing exercises on some of our data within our shipbuilding business. Uh, that'll just make us more efficient. Um, we have a, a significant relationship with Amazon Web Services, um, and they're so interested uh, in our two shipyards because our shipyards are 
just a, a, a massive field of data that they love to get their hands on. Now, you got to protect it from a security and a cyber standpoint appropriately, um, and they understand that. Um, but the ability to manage that data uh, and see through it with AI, uh, AI tools um, to make you more efficient is obvious, and we're going to do that. Chris, thanks very much. Always a pleasure talking to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Vago. Always appreciate it.